first reading this morning is taken from 1 Corinthians 9, 16 to 23. If I preach the gospel, I have no reason to boast because I'm compelled to preach and woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For For if I do this willingly, I have reward, but if unwillingly, I am entrusted with a commission. What then is my reward? To preach the gospel and offer it free of charge and not make full use of my rights in the gospel. Although I am free from all and not anyone's slave, I have made myself a slave to everyone in order to win more people. To the Jews I became like a Jew, to win Jews. To those under the law, like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, to win those under the law. To those who are without the law, like one without the law, though I am not without God's law, but under the law of Christ, to win those without the law. To the weak I became weak in order to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that I may be, so that I may be every possible means to save some. Now I do all this because of the gospel, so that I may share in the blessings. Second readings from Mark 1:29 to 39. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went into Simon and Andrew's house with James and John. Simon's mother-in-law was lying in bed with a fever, and they told him about her at once. So he went to her, took, took her by the hand and raised her up. The fever left her, and she began to serve them. When evening came, after the sun had set, they brought to him all those who were sick and demon-possessed. The whole town was assembled at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and drove out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he got up, went out and made his way to a deserted place. And there he was praying. Simon and his companions searched for him. And when they found him, they said, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let's go on to the neighbouring villages, so that I may preach there too. This is why I, I have come. He went into all of Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. This is the word of the Lord. is that all right if you could find your seats again if you haven't wandered too far astray there'll be more time for fellowship after the service and then you'll get to have a cup of tea or a coffee or even a I'm not sure what the treats are, but there's good, good food out there today. It'll be worth it to stick around after the service. You know, I've been back from my annual leave for a couple of weeks now. Oh, those were the good old days. But since then, in my sermons, I've been highlighting my renewed conviction regarding the singular importance of conversion and discipleship. And so to help us understand what is discipleship, I presented a simple definition. Friends of Jesus place our faith in him, live a Christian lifestyle, and build each other up to maturity. 
Now, the simple enough definition that needs a lot of unpacking. So to recognize there's three clauses in this definition, and they make a whole lot more sense when I expand them. For instance, the friends of Jesus place our faith in him because through an encounter with the living God, we have discovered God's story makes sense of our story. This occurs when we read the Bible, pray, and share. That covers the first clause. And the second clause, we can expand it by saying that compelled by the Holy Spirit, the friends of Jesus commit to living a Christian lifestyle by practicing works of piety, being acts of private devotion and public worship, and works of mercy, being acts of compassion and justice. And then the third clause, we humbly accept we cannot do this on our own. So the friends of Jesus build each other up when we gather for worship, fellowship, and connection, understanding that we mature as we discover sometimes we win, but mostly we learn. So from here on in, my sermons will expand on and highlight these clauses that we might together mature into friends of Jesus. For instance, our scripture readings this morning make clear there are rewards and blessings for the friends of Jesus. But those readings then beg the question, well, what must we do and who must we do it with if we want to enjoy those rewards and blessings? Well, to answer that question, when describing the difference between objective and subjective truth last week, I drew attention to a very significant verse in the letter to the Hebrews. We read, Now without faith it is impossible to please God, since the one who draws near to him must believe that he exists, and that he rewards those who seek him. Very important verse from the New Testament, one we do well to meditate upon. It's a very challenging verse, and it succinctly indicates a key truth for placing one's faith in Jesus, that we must believe he exists. Now, the key verse from our scripture readings today, from the first letter to Corinthians, well, it sounds very similar to this. Paul wrote, now I do all this because of the gospel, so that I may share in the blessings. See, Paul the apostle not only believed God exists, but sought to live his life in such a way as to please God, because he had discovered the gospel, the good news that Jesus is Lord. Now, before you join the, the, the apostle in such a commitment, I'm sure you want to know, before anything else, what are the rewards and blessings enjoyed by the friends of Jesus? Well, from our scripture readings, we discover the rewards and blessings enjoyed by the friends of Jesus include purpose and power. The friends of Jesus enjoy purpose and power. These are a blessing. They are a reward. Now, all of us want purpose and power, right? And we'll do anything to get them, right? That, that is true, can be seen in the Red Bull flood tag competition. Contest in which teams must build homemade, human-powered flying machines and pilot them off a high deck of nine meters in hopes of achieving flight. Teams are typically comprised of five members, one pilot and four pushers to help gain initial momentum off the deck. The flying machines must be entirely human-powered. There's no external energy sources allowed or even stored power. 
They must also be less than eight and a half meters and weigh no more than 205 kilograms, including the pilot. Teams are judged on distance flown, but also creativity of the craft and showmanship. As a result, this contest is known for its creative designs, its entertaining performances, and the spectacular, if often brief, flights, or at least attempts at flight, off the pier into the water below. Let's have a look. Oh, volume, please. Now, I know the announcer promised eight, but we're just going to stop at one if you don't mind. <laughs> See, don't we all want purpose to our life? For these teams, their purpose is to fly and to do so with style. Don't we all want to under or don't we all understand that our purpose in life is going to require effort and perseverance? In other words, we need power. And there is certainly nothing wrong with getting a little help from our friends and enjoying ourselves along the way. So how do we know the rewards and blessings enjoyed by the friends of Jesus include purpose and power? Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God. See, our scripture reading from the book of Isaiah started with a declaration of God's existence, that he is the creator and that he is Lord over all, always. This is the good news. This is the gospel. Do we believe this or not? Creator and Lord, God has proven himself time and time again that he cares for his creation and especially cares for his people. How does he care for his people? Those who trust in the Lord will renew their strength. You've heard these words. Your heart has been warmed by these words. You've taken to heart the promise. Our Creator and Lord shows He cares for His people by giving strength to the powerless, the weary. Those who trust in the Lord soar as if with wings, 
which is far superior and more reliable than the wings on the worthless and ineffective contraptions of the Red Bull competition. See, trusting in the Lord, the friends of Jesus will run and not become weary. We will walk and we will not faint. We will certainly not crash and burn after just a few steps. Nor will it matter if we look good doing it. The rewards and the blessings enjoyed by the friends of Jesus include purpose and power when those around us are fainting and weary, stumbling and falling under the consequences of their sin. Free, full, and forever life, Jesus promises to his friends is very much like soaring on wings, running without becoming weary, or walking without becoming faith. So what kind of life do you want to live? If, like me, you want purpose and power in your life, then you're probably wondering, as I once did, what must we do and who must we do it with if we want to gain those rewards and enjoy those blessings? Well, both Jesus and Paul had purpose and power, yet both did something to gain those rewards and blessings. From their example, we learn to develop our lifestyle based on works of piety and mercy. See, despite the claims of this fallen world, we do not get a purpose for life nor the power to achieve it by searching our hearts or contriving it in our own minds. We find purpose and power in exactly the same way Jesus did, who, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he got up, went out, and made his way to a deserted place. And there he was praying. He said to Simon and his companions, let's go on to the neighboring villages so that I may preach there too. This is why I have come. See, Jesus found his purpose and his power through prayer, which is a work of piety. Piety, it is a practice by which we express our reverence for God and through which the Holy Spirit transforms our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. Works of piety can be characterized as either personal devotion or public worship. Prayer is not the only work of piety the friends of Jesus practice. There is also the public worship of God. There is reading God's word. There is sharing the Lord's supper. There is family and private prayer. There is searching and studying the scriptures in community. There is fasting or abstinence. There is Christian sharing and so many other disciplines besides this of personal devotion and public worship. How does the Holy Spirit form us into the friends of Jesus through these private and public works of piety? Well, as was described by English author T.H. White, who was himself inspired by the ancient Greek philosopher Heraclitus, choices become habits. Habits become character. And character becomes our destiny. Hear that. Choices become habits. Habits become character. Character becomes our destiny. See, incorporating these works of piety into your lifestyle, it is a choice that will help you form habits. It might be hard at first, but once you've made that choice and stick with it for 21 days, they say, it becomes a habit by which the Holy Spirit renews and reforms your character which then becomes your destiny. That is to say, the traits and behaviors that constitute your character are the driving forces that determine the course of your life. Who you are internally, 
your virtues, your values, consistent patterns of behavior. That matters more to God than what you produce. And thus your character influences what happens to you in the long run, whether you are rewarded and blessed at the final consummation of all things. Beyond their works of piety, both Paul and Jesus committed themselves to works of mercy, being acts of personal compassion and public justice. In our scripture readings, Paul specifically described his conviction and practice of preaching. Jesus also stated this purpose was his own, but we can easily see he did far more than preach as he traveled throughout Galilee. He also healed the sick and drove out demons. Preaching, healing, and exorcisms are works of mercy arising out of Jesus' compassion and his commitment to justice. Now, preaching, healing, and exorcisms are not the only works of mercy the friends of Jesus practice. We also practice feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, caring for the sick, visiting those in prison, sheltering the homeless, welcoming the stranger, making peace, serving the common good, sharing the good news, and many other disciplines besides. Through these works of mercy, along with the works of piety, the Holy Spirit forms us into the friends of Jesus through our choices our habit, character, and our destiny. But there is a danger that is likely to cause resistance in some of you to this message. Now imagine you're living in California and you're watching television in the late 1970s. I know some of you were not even born yet. But a neat middle-aged executive peers out from the television screen. He says, hello, and his face crinkles into a sheepish grin. I'm from General Telephone. Boos and hisses explode off camera. Now I'm aware that General Telephone provides less than adequate service, he says. A rotten tomato slides down his chin. But we're spending $200 million in California this year on improving our service. He's hit with an egg. Cables, switches, personnel, everything. Cream pie splatters over his face. Thank you for his patience, or your patience, he mumbles through the goo. In another commercial, a woman at a crowded cocktail party asks her husband to say something funny. General telephone, he replies, and everyone falls into paroxysms of laughter. The punchline, we know some people think our service is laughable, but we're spending $200 million in California this year to improve it. What's so funny about that? See, these commercials appeared on Los Angeles television as part of a zany campaign run by General Telephone of California, which has since merged with other companies to become Verizon. By tacitly conceding the company's mistakes, the marketing department hoped the campaign would win sympathy and understanding among the system's many disgruntled users. Now, local churches... And Christians, well, we're often ridiculed for our attempt to live as Jesus lived. We're belittled for our commitment to acts of personal devotion, public worship, personal compassion, and public justice. And this ridicule can be painful enough for Christians to want to avoid any public acts of worship and justice. But having purpose and power as Jesus did means only that sometimes we succeed. 
but mostly we learn from our mistakes. In dealing with our mistakes honestly, we represent the kingdom of God in this fallen world more maturely with each attempt. It's not our success that represents the kingdom of God. It's learning from our mistakes. Our family, our friends, our neighbors and associates may ridicule us for living a Christian lifestyle, but through these practices, we gain the rewards and we enjoy the blessings promised. The rewards and blessings of purpose and power will be realized in your life when you commit to practicing works of piety and works of mercy. So incorporate these into your lifestyle because you have placed your faith in Jesus and therefore want to do as Jesus did. Now in our scripture readings, it sounded as if both Paul the Apostle and Jesus our Lord talked as if what they did was all about them. That the things they did yielded rewards and blessings for themselves alone. Look at what I do. But we need to keep in mind, Paul was writing to encourage a specific community of faith in a specific time and place. And Jesus was setting an example for his immediate disciples as well as for those who will believe in me through their word. So they talked about themselves, but they had in mind others, the community of faith around them. So rather than assuming the timeless wisdom of the Bible for us as individuals alone, let us take seriously the aspect of our discipleship where we succeed and learn together. See, it's too easy to approach placing our faith in Jesus and living a Christian lifestyle as an individual rather than as a team sport. The importance of being on team together in community has been highlighted recently by author Aaron Wren in his newly released book, Life in the Negative World, Confronting Challenges in an Anti-Christian Culture. See, Wren has long been known for his three worlds of evangelicalism model describing the increasing culture war between Christianity and secular society. Within the story of American secularization, he described three distinct phases. Positive world, which is pre-1994, then the neutral world, 1994 to 2014, but most importantly for our discussion now is the negative world, 2014 to the present. See, Wren and others believe Western societies have come to have a negative view of Christianity. Being known as a Christian is a social negative, particularly in the elite domains of society. Christian morality is expressly repudiated and seen as a threat to the public good and the new public moral order. Subscribing to Christian moral views or violating the secular moral order brings negative consequences. Now, in his book, Wren expands on how evangelicals should start living in this negative world by highlighting four themes. He encourages a posture of exploration. See, in the world at large, not just in the church, we are in a time of rapid change and uncertainty. This calls for adopting a posture of exploration with less reliance on planning. We are all in unknown territory and have to get more comfortable with walking by faith rather than sight. 
And Christian churches should already be well primed for this. So starting with that posture then, we move to having an increased focus on being a counterculture. See, evangelical churches need to spend much more time self-consciously and intentionally stewarding the strength and health of their own communities, nurturing Christian moral values and behaviors, because we need to adopt a minority mindset. Evangelicals have too often liked to pretend that we are the moral majority, and that is certainly very implausible today evangelicals need to learn to act instead like other minorities have always acted. We have to create our own institutions and practices that demarcate and sustain community life. And we need to be less reliant on the mainstream institutions of society. And finally, he raises the theme of raising the bar on church. See, as evangelicalism becomes more of a minority faith, that requires an unpopular choice to embrace... This gives evangelical churches the opportunity to raise the bar for what they expect out of their members. Raising this bar will be crucial to having stronger churches. Now his analysis is very interesting for it is true. Evangelical churches do not hold a privileged position in any Western societies any longer. By developing healthy functioning, and safe communities of faith with members known for integrity, churches will exemplify the rewards and blessings of our Christian lifestyle, which will then draw people more readily to placing their own faith in Jesus. So taking Wren's advice, we need to focus on strengthening our community so that we might mature our faith and our lifestyle together. Because of placing his own faith in Jesus, the Christian lifestyle of Paul, the apostle, involved him traveling and sharing, encouraging conversion and equipping discipleship. The purpose of his letter to the community of faith at Corinth was to encourage and equip them to grow in their faith and more faithfully live Christian lifestyles in such a way that they might mature together. His letter contains acknowledgments of their successes but much more recognition of their failures. He shared with them his own experience of purpose and power in the hope they would focus on what brought them to faith, that it might bring others to place their faith in Jesus. And then Jesus, too, talked as if what he did was all about him and his mission, but he called disciples precisely so that they would continue his work to extend the kingdom, calling others to place their faith in Jesus, and begin living Christian lifestyles. Jesus set an example for his disciples and instructed them most often in how to love one another. So when we look closely at what they did as compared to what they said, we learn from the witness of both Paul the Apostle and Jesus our Lord that to gain the rewards and enjoy the blessings of purpose and power, we do so together with others in community, which is why we humbly accept that we cannot live Christian lifestyles on our own. The friends of Jesus build each other up when we gather for worship, fellowship, and for connection, understanding that we mature as we discover. Sometimes we win, but mostly we learn. Now today, 
is an annual commemoration of Community Sunday. We have done this in the past couple of years, but we are certainly committing ourselves to doing so well into the future. The first Sunday in February. Now, this Community Sunday is meant to encourage this aspect of our discipleship, that the friends of Jesus, friends of Jesus succeed and learn together. So what then can we do to help make this a healthy, functioning, and safe community of faith with members known for integrity? Well, the first thing I'd like to encourage us all to do is to commit to community. Whether to this community or another, it is absolutely essential to becoming a friend of Jesus that you be worshiping, fellowshipping, and connecting with other friends of Jesus for the purpose of maturing in your faith and in your lifestyle. You cannot do it on your own. Now, yes, there are works of piety and works of mercy that you can do on your own, sure. But your faith and your lifestyle will be poorer for it. You will not have the wise counsel of those mentors who have gone before you in faith and lifestyle, who have gained experience and wisdom that they can share with you. You will not have peers with whom you can share your experiences and with whom you can test the timeless wisdom of God in these uncertain times. You will sometimes succeed in your faith and your lifestyle, but mostly you will mature as you share with others your joys and your sorrows, your struggles and achievements, your questions and your doubts, your certainty and your answers. So commit to community. Now, let me be painfully blunt for a moment here. Now, here at Norell and Kong, we need people to be part of the solution, not merely point out the problems. Now, I can assure you that none of you spend more time thinking about what I have done wrong or what we could do better than So you do not need to tell me what I have done wrong or what we could do better, because I'm already all over it, friends, I assure you. So instead, be part of the solution. Think about what you can do to make this better, to help me be better. We're in this together. For example, you can join the production team. Yes, I'm talking about you three. See, they have had a steep learning curve on quite advanced audio equipment. But we need people also to help with controlling the presentation and with controlling the cameras. These are not onerous or difficult tasks. I mean, they'll tell you they are. But really, you can work it out. It can be a skill that you can learn. They require people willing to learn and be available to support our events. There's a problem that needs a solution. Be part of the solution. You also could offer to join or even lead the welcoming team. This is a vital ministry for our church. Our welcoming team really needs people willing to go beyond merely shaking hands at the door, which is a good thing to do. But it needs more than that to help integrate guests into our community, following up with them, making sure they know where the toilets are or that they can stay after church or fellowship or whatever, to help our guests feel welcome, and that they have a pathway for becoming part of this community. And the final option I want to highlight for you this morning is forming a benevolence team. Now, an important way that we can care for and love each other is by offering 
offering our skills and our talents and our resources to each other when needs arise. And needs do arise. There are things we can do, but we have no one who can sort of take stock of who has what and who has time to do what, etc. And to then activate those resources for meeting a need in our community. As needs are raised, we need someone to put us into action and let us be committed to action. Our production team, our welcoming team, and a benevolence team are important ways of growing our community. So be part of the solution. On this Community Sunday, let us respond to the call of God by recommitting ourselves to this community of faith. Because to build God's kingdom here, we are going to need to rededicate ourselves as members and commission some among us as leaders in various roles and ministries. So at the beginning of this program year, let us take a few minutes to reaffirm our commissions and our commitment to gather and to work together as a church for the sake of God's kingdom. So would all members please stand and let us renew our commitment to this church. I will say the text in yellow, if you could follow in with text on white. Lord, you have never waited for us to become perfect before showing us the measure of your love or commissioning us to serve you in our world. We dare to believe you are always calling us to a new venture, pointing us to new horizons in ministry, and will never cease to do so. This is a task, Lord, we cannot do alone. We need you as our guide and the love of each other. On this occasion, we therefore claim the privilege of committing ourselves anew to your service. With your help, we will bear one another's burdens and love our neighbor as ourself. We will accept disappointment and frustration, opposition and recognition, not lose heart. We will love our world as you love it, bring friendship into our work and courage into our politics. We will bring freshness into our homes, excitement into our studies, and adventure into our church. Stir into flame the gifts you have given us and the faith to use them without reserve, that your spirit may be a force of cohesion in our community, of enthusiasm and happiness in our work, and our courage and consolation when times are tough. As your disciples, make us know the freedom to move into the unknown and the untried, to see the opportunities of the new day, and to serve our present age with compassion, imagination, and courage. Lord, be with us until we have done our part and share your joy. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Now, as our church grows in number and influence, the systems and ministries of our church grow more numerous and more complicated. Therefore, it behooves us all to share the responsibility and serve the mission of this church by applying our skills, gifts, time, and resources as and when we are able. So if you are a leader or a helper in any kind of ministry in this church, you know who you are. If you think it's you, then it's you. Then please, can you stand and answer the following questions? 
Will you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and do you believe in your heart God has raised him from the dead? Okay, with a little... Yeah, thank you, Rod. Seth, you have been called to participate in God's mission of reconciliation, creation. Do you commit to applying your spiritual gifts, your heart, your abilities, your personality, and your experiences to your chosen ministry activity among this community of faith? Well, then, fantastic. Please, let's congratulate them for reaffirming their commitment for the work that you do. Thank you very much, and please be seated. Now, according to our rules and procedures, the deacons, together with the elders and the pastor, have primary responsibility for the facilitation and administration of the various organizations, regular programs, and occasional activities of the church. They are responsible for budget, property, safety, standard operating procedures, administration, child protection, and other issues as required. So as such, much faith, prayer, discernment, wisdom, and enthusiasm is expected of our deacons. So the deacons who are present, can you please stand and reform your commitment to this ministry? Will you confess with your mouths Jesus is Lord, and do you believe in your heart God raised him from the dead? Do you accept you have been called to participate in God's mission of reconciliation to his creation? Do you commit to applying your spiritual gifts, your heart, your abilities, your personality, and your experiences to the ministry of deacon among this community of faith? Well, then, fantastic. Please applaud their recommitment. Now, according to our rules and procedures, the elders are responsible for the discernment of God's leading. They will direct the congregation in fulfilling its vision and mission. They will discern the spiritual condition and pastoral needs of the church. So as such, much faith, prayer, discernment, wisdom, and enthusiasm, as well as a whole lot of patience with their pastor, is expected of them. So if you're an elder and you're present, can you please stand? I know there are a couple of ways, so it's probably going to leave just one, two on their own. But represent. Will you? Confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and do you believe in your heart God has raised him from the dead? Do you accept you have been called to participate in God's mission of reconciliation to his creation? Do you commit to applying your spiritual gifts, your heart, your abilities, your personality, and your experiences to the ministry of elder among this community of faith? Well then, please, applaud the recommitment of our elders. See, friends, we are not a crowd who gathers to watch a musical performance and hear a speaker. But we are a community that gathers for worship, fellowship, and for connection. And to make this community of work, it requires people to be part of the solution. To commit to community so that we would go forth together. So we accept that we are called as partners in Christ's service. So let us join together in singing our next song. Stand. Yeah. 